Uh, it gives me uh, great pleasure to introduce to you the Reverend Robert Sturdy. He's from Daphne, Alabama, uh, a graduate of the Citadel, uh, which is important to know because if your cell phone goes off, uh, Rob uh, scored very high marks in marksmanship, and, uh, and so he will take care of that. Graduate of the Citadel, uh, went to the University of Oxford for his theological studies, which is where I met he and his wife Stephanie since then. They've had two children. Uh, Rob has served as a rector of a church in Myrtle Beach, and now is on staff at St. Andrew's Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, uh, where he runs the Ridley Institute, which I would encourage you to get online and take a look at. A wonderful theological resource uh, for uh, the church and anybody wanting to dig a little bit deeper into our Reformation heritage, especially within Anglicanism. So delighted to have you, a friend, uh, today and tomorrow. And of course, Friday, we have Bob Flayhart from Oak Mountain Presbyterian Church. He'll be our preacher here on Friday. But the Reverend Mr. Sturdy will preach after we stand and sing hymn number 493, verses 1 through 5. Please pray with me. Father, we give you thanks for the, the deep love that you've shown us in Jesus in the devotion of Jesus and the perseverance of Jesus in the death of Jesus and his resurrection, his reign and his intercession for us. And we pray some of the goodness of this and the joy of it might come to us powerfully by the help of the Holy Spirit. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for the warm welcome. Those of you that were involved in uh, preparing my welcome, it was, uh, it was exceptional. One of the most welcoming places I've been to in my life, and I haven't even really been in the church yet. And, and thank you, Andrew, for your kind welcome. I think the greatest thing about the trip was that I got to see Andrew, whom I've not seen in many years, and that's a real pleasure and a privilege that I'm mindful of. Well, I want you to imagine with me a preacher in a pulpit and a gun on his hip and a bloody shirt on his back and a missing eye. Conjure that unsettling image and you have actually begun to give mental shape to Marilyn Robinson's grandfather Ames in her Pulitzer Prize winning book, Gilead. The book follows the life of the Reverend John Ames. He is a third generation clergyman serving in a town, Midwestern town, that the book takes its name from. John's father casts a long shadow over his life, but no one casts a longer shadow over John's life than his grandfather. His grandfather was a fiery abolitionist preacher. It says that he preached his people into war in, uh, in the terrible affair that was bleeding Kansas. That's where he lost his eye, and that's where he got his bloody shirt from. And John says that he remembers his grandfather preaching with his mangled face and his bloody shirt quite proudly. And as he stood in the pulpit, he was a vision of what it would mean to be absolutely and totally devoted to a divine cause. But he was also an image of a, a much darker reality. And that was a vision, as he stood there, of an unattainable holiness. If this is the kind of sacrifice God requires, 
And it said that Grandfather Ames, as he preached, he, he would face the congregation with his, with his blind side, with his mangled side, because that was the holiest part of him. And if this kind of mangling is the kind of devotion that God requires, who could stand before a God like this? There's another story that I want to share with you. And this one comes from the Old Testament. It's, it has a similar feel to it as Grandfather Ames. It's a story of a father named Abraham and his son Isaac. Grandfather Ames gave up an eye, but Abraham is called to give up something more precious. He's called to give up his own son. And here again, I think in reading this story and hearing this story, we are confronted with a level of devotion and commitment that is unattainable. That should shake us really to the core of our being. Is this the kind of sacrifice God requires? And even then, we have much deeper problems than who can appear before such a God. The deeper problem is if this is the kind of sacrifice God requires, who would want to appear before him? So, let's look at this story together. Genesis 22. I like when people follow along. It's what prevents uh, me from lying to you if you follow along. You can pull it up on your iPhone. I assume you have pew Bibles. Genesis 22 is is easy to find even for the people not well versed in the Christian tradition because it's the first book in the Bible. Literally, all you have to do is open it. And we'll look at this together and see if there's more than meets the eye to this particular story. Let's begin by asking this question. What was it that God asked of Abraham? Well, we read in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took his hand, the fire, and the knife. So went both of them together, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. Behold the fire and the wood. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? We're pointing out a handful of things here. First, Abraham had not one son. He had two. Ishmael, first Isaac, second. Tragic thing about these stories is that Abraham never truly considered Ishmael to be his son, born to him by a woman who was not his wife, but a concubine. It's one of the sadder things in the Old Testament as you're reading through it, if you've never encountered it before. It's a shocking thing. Ishmael, Abraham's son, is expendable at least to Abraham. Abraham casts him aside, banishing him to the desert. Isaac's the only one whom Abraham considers a son, and God knows this. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. You can read through the stories of Abraham and Isaac, and you'll never come across a record of Abraham saying to his son, I love you. And even though he never says it, God knows he loves this son, your only son whom you love. Abraham rose early the next day, and I think you should take note of how lonely this man has become. 
He was a great man, a, a governor of men. He would not need to saddle his own donkey. He would not need to cut down the timber for himself. But he does. And why does he do this? Well, people who suffer often enter into a self-imposed exile. Suffering can be shameful and it can be embarrassing, maybe because when we suffer, we're weak. Maybe because when we suffer, we're made afraid. And these are not things that we like to broadcast to the world. So Abraham begins his his lonely, self-imposed exile, saddling his own donkey, cutting his own timber. Suffering is an intimate thing as well. When we're suffering, we don't invite strangers to look at us. We invite close friends, close friends, the most intimate and Abraham only takes two young men and his son. And when it comes time to ascend the mount, he doesn't even take them. Only the two of them go. I suppose as they climb the mountain, it's beginning to dawn on Isaac what's happening. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? That's what he asks. And child sacrifice was not really uncommon in those days. Misha, the king of Moab, did so. Jephthah, least admirable leader in the book of Judges, he did so. Two of the Old Testament's most wicked kings... Ahaz and Manasseh introduced the practice into Judah for which they were justly condemned. There's archaeological evidence, bones of of, of thousands of young children we have found in Carthage and Phoenician sites. Child sacrifice was widespread. It was a, a common pagan practice and maybe it's beginning to dawn on Isaac and beginning to dawn on Abraham that the God who called them out of the land of their fathers is actually no different than any other pagan god who would demand this kind of horrific sacrifice. How in the world do you make sense of, of what we've encountered so far? Soren Kierkegaard tried to make sense of it. You can read about it in his book, Fear and Trembling. He put forward an idea that was described as what, he, what people have called the theological suspension of the ethical, and, and that means in plain speak that God can command us to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants even things we know to be immoral. But what kind of God is that who can overthrow our morality at a moment's notice over something so precious as a son? Does a God like that even have a morality of his own? These are the questions Kierkegaard leaves us with at the end of the book. I think they're unsatisfying. Different way to make sense of the passage, and it's it's a common way, is to try and derive a moral from it. And then, and then this story becomes, becomes a moralizing story. For example, the rabbi and Jewish philosopher Joseph Solochek, he said, there are times when God tells man to withdraw from whatever man desires most. Now that's a kind way of putting it, isn't it? It's a gentle way of putting it. Because Abraham has not been asked to withdraw from what he desires most. He's been asked to snuff out what he desires most. He's been asked to destroy his treasure, his his only son, whom he loves. And this kind of moralizing impulse can sneak into Christianity from time to time. Nowhere does the moralizing impulse sneak into Christianity more than this time of year. Called Lent... Where a friend of mine said, Lent is the time of year when Christians give up the things that make us happiest. But to what end? And what a dreary, life-crushing view of religious devotion. Maybe there's more going on than, than that. We don't know what Abraham is thinking. We've guessed. We know what some people have thought about it, but we really need to continue. What was the response? 
Well, at verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abram built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abram reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abram lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Abram went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. He would have gone through with it, it looks like. He would have gone through with it. He raised the knife to slaughter his own son, but he is prevented from going through with the sacrifice, and he's prevented by God, no less. Those of you who have been following along, especially those of you who've been following along closely, you know I skipped a verse earlier in the reading. I, I skipped verse 8. To the question, Father, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham did have an answer, and the answer was... God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. You might have heard of the word providence before. It comes from the Latin providere, and it, it just means to foresee. It's where we get the word provision. It's where we get words like provide. What Abraham was saying is, God, my son, God has foreseen the need on top of the mountain. He knows. He has foreseen it, and he will make provision. He will provide. In fear and trembling, I'm sure he said it. But he said it. He will provide on the mountain. And God did provide. The story concludes with God announcing over Abraham, Now I know, Abraham. Now I know your total devotion. Because you did not withhold your only son. But Abraham knows something now, too, that he didn't know before. Abraham has learned that this God is, is not like the other gods. He does not require us to provide for him our best sons, but he will provide for us. And so the story at the end of the day is not a story of the total devotion of one man before his God. After all, the man was never permitted to go through with the act of total devotion. Rather, this story is about God's devotion to this man and his son. Because he made provision for them. Both of them. And that leads me to one more point. Not about this particular story, but about the broader story of Christianity. At the heart of Christianity is another sun, and another mount, and another provision. And, and this sun is God's son. And his name is Jesus, and much like Isaac, this son was beloved. His father said as much at the baptism of Jesus, announcing from heaven, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Much like Isaac, this son was called to go up the mountain to offer a sacrifice. And much like Isaac, this son was called to go and carry the wood for the sacrifice upon his own back. But unlike Isaac, at the top of the mount, there was no lamb caught in the thicket. God did not make provision for this son. And that's because this son was the lamb, caught not in a thicket, but a cross. Not caught against his will, 
but willingly laying down his own life. God did not make provision for this son because this son is God's provision for the whole world. For what was God making provision in Jesus? Well, we're in the South, and I grew up in the South, and I heard, even though I didn't believe it, that Jesus was God's provision for the forgiveness of sins, and he is. I have heard that Jesus is God's provision for the resurrection of the dead, and he is. I had heard that Jesus was God's provision to help us put away our shame and our guilt and deal with them definitively, and he is. But there is one very important provision that I want you to know about before we bring this to a close. Reading through the Bible recently with my son, whom I love, he asked why it was that Jesus had to die on the cross. And I explained to him it was for love that Jesus died on the cross. If you had a sick heart, I said to him, and the only thing that could save you was my heart, I would give it to you. Even if I had to die, I would give it to you because I love you. We were sick, and Jesus had the only thing that could save us, so he gave it to us. Well, my son began to cry, but it was not because he was overwhelmed at the sacrifice of Jesus. This is what he said through tears. Daddy, I'd never let you do that because I love you more than I love myself. That's what he said. What a gift. It's a gift. It's a, it's a deep treasure of the human experience to be loved by someone that deeply and to return love that deeply. All humans need this kind of love, to be loved by someone more than they love themselves. And it's on the cross that God makes provision for this need to be loved in this way. On the cross, God provides the deepest imaginable love that originates in the very heart of God himself. It's on the cross we learn Jesus, God's own son, loves us more than he loves himself. God shows us his love for us in this way, said Paul, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Just as God said to Abraham, now I know because you did not withhold your own son, we can look at the cross no matter who you are or what you've done or what your background is, where you're coming from, you too can say, now I know. Now we know because you did not withhold your son from us. Now we know. We, we had a suspicion you were this good. We didn't dare to believe it. It was too good to be true. But now we know. There is a love this deep, this wide and this broad. We're not, we're not strong enough to understand it. That's why Paul prays we'd have strength to understand it. But we get a glimpse and we can know it to be true. And that's the real magic and the real power of Christianity. Christianity is, is not the story of human devotion to God. Christianity is the story of God's absolute and total devotion to people. And so the emphasis must never be on what we must give over to God, but what he first gave over to us. Himself. And that can be renewed every day. Let's pray.
Father, may the depth, may the depth and the width of the knowledge of the love we have in Jesus sink deeply into the souls of everyone here that they might have this need met because God has made provision to be loved this deeply in his son. We pray you would seal this to our hearts in the name of Jesus. Amen.